All right. Hey, you may be seated, everyone. Hey, can we give it up for Kara and everyone for reading the scriptures for us? Yes. Uh, yes. And with that, we've ended or we're concluding today uh, the book of Nehemiah. And um, here we are. We finally made it to chapter 13. Now, just to give a quick recap of where we've been over the last uh, few weeks, just uh, Nehemiah is this book about a, a person named Nehemiah who was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. His people um, were a people that had been in exile for over 100 years, and they had been a people that had been historically oppressed. And so Nehemiah chapter 1, it starts with Nehemiah hearing words of the devastation of his homeland, which he's never been to, and yet he, he hears about it, and he's, he's um, straddled with grief and sorrow and sadness, and he prays. And then, of, of course, he prays to God, and then in chapter 2, he's actually given the favor of the king to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And then the, the journey from chapter 2 to chapter 6 is this whole journey where there's all sorts of haters <laughs> In the region, others who are opposed to this work that's happening in Jerusalem. Not only that, but Nehemiah, he himself has seen the devastation, the ruins, the broken walls. And, and through all of that, yet in from chapter 2 to chapter 6, Nehemiah is able to actually lead a group to actually rebuild the wall. So chapter 6, the wall is completed against all odds. Somehow the people of Israel, after years of being oppressed, they've started this work of rebuilding the wall, and here they are. Now after this moment of celebration, there's a series of things that happen. A covenant is made between Israel as well as with God. And here's the timeline, right? In chapter 9 and chapter 10, we actually looked at how God, they talk about God's faithfulness throughout history to the people of Israel. And the people of Israel make a covenant to God, basically saying, God, we're going to promise to live for you now. You've delivered us. You've given us this new wall to rebuild. We are yours now. It's almost like they, they have this fresh new start. They're basically like, God, you've, you've done such a miracle in our midst. We are now going to live completely for you. So they covenant with God. And then chapters 11 and 12, the people basically settle in Jerusalem, and they begin the task of rebuilding almost like this brand new community again here in Jerusalem. Nehemiah, meanwhile, actually goes back to Persia, to Babylon. And in chapter 13, we have Nehemiah coming back again to Jerusalem. After he's been back in Babylon, he comes back, and you're going to see, I mean, you heard what happened. Like, check this out. Look at Nehemiah's response, and look at how the book of Nehemiah ends. Check this out. It says, but while all this was going on in Jerusalem, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And here, when I came back to Jerusalem... I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. Now, what's happening here? Eliashib was part of the priestly class, and he had somehow allowed this person named Tobiah to use basically the offerings and, and the tithes, the giving of the people. He had allowed Tobiah to use it for personal gain. And so basically, Nehemiah's like, what in the world is going on? He calls it out. He basically says, it's an evil thing. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. He done mad here, guys. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? You see, Nehemiah's pretty upset here. He goes after all of these ways in which the people, they have not held their part in the bargain. Now, go to the next slide. 
I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Uh, A few weeks ago, we talked about how Sabbath was such a marker for the people of God as a day of rest and a day of basically uh, joy and contemplation. And it was a way to distinguish the people of God from everywhere else, where everywhere else was so driven by work and production. And basically, Nehemiah is like, Sabbath is important for us to, to be a witness to the world of what a worshiping, free, restful community looks like. And now they're desecrating it. And so he's mad. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on the city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Nehemiah's upset, guys. He's rebuking all over the place. Look at how crazy this gets. He goes, moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, he's going to go after how the people now have started to intermarry with other people, um, foreign wives and spouses and that sort of thing. Now, just a quick side note. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Someone like Moses, for instance, actually married outside of the Israelite family. He married a Midianite named Zipporah. And so it's not like God is against intermarriage from different foreign entities. But in a moment, you're going to see why Nehemiah is so upset about this. Check this out. It says, I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. He's done mad, everyone. He's real mad, right? I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? There's the clue of why Nehemiah was against this, of why he asked the people to commit to not to do this. It's because what would happen is people that would intermarry in these ways would end up following other gods into idolatry and as a result because or or come into sinfulness. And, And so that's why Nehemiah is bringing this up. Now, here's the thing. What in the world is going on? Because honestly, if I were writing this story, I'd be like, Nehemiah has this burden for God. He's sent to Jerusalem, rebuilds the wall. They make this covenant to follow God, and then they live happily ever after. I mean, that should be the way that chapter 13 reads, right? In fact, that's how I would love to preach it to you today. (laughs) But that's not what it says. You've got Nehemiah pulling out people's hair and rebuking people. And he's like, what in the world is going on? Now, keep in mind, remember I told you, in the story of, the scope of the story of Nehemiah, if you were to flip back to chapter 9, remember I told you about the covenant? I mean, look at these words in the covenant. Look at the commitment that the people of Israel had made to God. He, He says, in view of all this, in view of God and all that God has done, we are making a binding agreement before you, God, a covenant putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Look, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take the daughters for our sons. When the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We will be a people who continue to follow you. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel and be generous each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings. On the... We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree. God, we covenant with you. We will not neglect the house of our God. This was just a couple of chapters earlier. The people of God are basically like, God, we're going to commit to you. We're all in with you. 
Now, if you recall, a couple weeks ago, I talked about the frame of a covenant. The way that covenants were made, which is different than in modern times, we have contracts where signatures on paper mean so much. Back then, covenants were these agreements that were made, but they were made with an oath and an act. And usually the way that covenants were written is, this is what the king has done, which is what Nehemiah chapter 9 was about. Nehemiah chapter 10 is basically the people of Israel are like, we are going to assume responsibility. God, we're going to follow you. We're going to honor you. After everything you've done, we're going to do this. And then what would happen with the covenant? A sacrifice would be made. That was the covenant act. And the sacrifice was made in such a manner in which the vassal to the king, and in this case, it's God who's the king. The vassals are the people of Israel. The vassals make the sacrifice and say, God, if we don't keep our end of the bargain, may we perish like this sacrifice. Well, just a couple of chapters later, the people fail miserably. Almost in every single way, they don't live up to what they said they would. Now, I realize some of you, maybe you're not uh, a Christian here today, and you're like, you know, this is exactly the reason why I'm so annoyed by Christians and by religious types. They keep saying one thing with their mouth. They say that they're all about this, holiness, kindness, justice, and they do the exact opposite. I mean, maybe you're just listening to this and you're just like, I cannot believe this, right? The people of Israel had this opportunity for a brand new start. They themselves do this whole covenant thing where they basically say, God, we are not going to neglect you. And just a couple of chapters later, Nehemiah is pulling out hair and he's like, this is awful. Now, what is basically being revealed in this passage, right? Because honestly, I would love to say to you guys, hey, look at how Nehemiah ends everyone. Like God has delivered them and now they live with conviction and power and hope and kindness and integrity. But the end of the chapter is basically like, Nehemiah is mad, everyone. And the people of Israel are just like when they first started. Now, if I were to contend that what's the lesson that we learn from this chapter, especially the way it ends, here it is. It's this phrase. We are a mess we're a mess. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, you are a mess. <laughs> turn to your other neighbor and say, you are too. Yes. We are a mess. I mean, what in the world is going on here? Like, this is such a mess. It's not like this neatly bow-tied kind of existence now the people of Israel it's like this is such a mess like what why in the world did God even deliver them and have them rebuild the wall all they're going to do is not listen to God again and you've got Nehemiah so angry at everyone and it's like seriously this is how the story is going to end with the people and everyone else this is an absolute mess you know, one of the things, again, most people think that, oh, religious types, and I, I'm not one of those religious types, and, you know, the Bible is only for people who are holy and, like, so cool and, like, so awesome. And, well, you know what's so fascinating is that the scriptures are actually a story of people who are just perpetually a mess. And this is no different. I mean, can you believe this? There's a people who are basically, like, God has done so much for them in helping them rebuild the wall 
taking them out of exile as they're beginning this movement, and yet they mess up again. We are such a mess. <laughs> the people of God, whether you're religious or you're not religious, all of us, we're just a mess. Uh, I remember I was actually, I was a pastor in Queens at some point, and I was um, invited to speak at a church in Chinatown, Manhattan. And they had an afternoon service. And so I said yes to it. And I was like, okay, I could go attend our church in the morning in, in Queens, and then I could drive into the city uh, to Chinatown um, at 1 o'clock. And so that's what I did. So I remember hopping in the car, driving into Manhattan. And have, have, has anyone ever been to Chinatown, like, in the middle of the day, on a beautiful day? Anyone? Like, there's a lot of traffic there. And so I was, like, I was stuck in traffic. I was growing increasingly late. Finally, I get to Chinatown. There's, like, no empty spots anywhere. I'm too frugal to pay for a parking lot or anything. But even then, I could not move. So I'm looking for parking spaces everywhere. There's so many pedestrians. It's like, it's everywhere. And so like, I'm, all of a sudden, the time that I was supposed to be in this service, I'm way past that. I'm, and I'm approaching the start of the service time, which is at one o'clock. So at like 12.59 or something, I end up calling frantically on Bluetooth in the car. I'm, I, I call the friend who had invited me, Pastor So-and-so. I'm like, hey, uh, like, and he doesn't pick up. So I, I'm, I'm like leaving a voice. I'm like, Pastor So-and-so, listen, I'm so sorry. There is so much traffic here. I don't know if I'm going to be there in time. I'm going to do my best to get there. Uh, please pray for me. Um, I'm praying right now for you and what's happening. And I, I, just, I just, you know, and so I was like, okay, and goodbye, you know. And then, like, I'm still looking for traffic, but, like, the, the, nothing's moving. And so I'm like, I hate this place. I hate Chinatown. What is wrong with these people? And I start, like, banging on the steering wheel. I'm like, I cannot believe this. Like, what in the world am I supposed to do? These people don't move. Why are these people double parking? Ah! Like, I'm, like, yelling and screaming. And I realized the phone, the voicemail is still on. And I looked at my phone. And I immediately turned it off. And then I just started sweating. <laughs> it was so hot somehow. And I was like, I was like, oh no. Now, from that point on, it was kind of a blur. I must have parked illegal or something. I ran in there. I'm like, I, in the back of my mind, I've got what I've just done in the back of my head. I run into the service. You know, I get up there and I like, Almost immediately, I get on stage. I'm like, hey, everyone. It's so wonderful to be here. You know, I love this church. And gosh, I love New York City. It's just so amazing. And, you know, that I preach this sermon. You know? <laughs> Meanwhile, again, in the back of my head, I'm like, this voicemail. So I, I talk to the pastor later. I'm like, hey, Pastor Sons. I'm like, hey, you know, did you, did you get a voicemail from me? He's like, I, I don't know. I, like, what, when? And I said, oh, I called you right before the service. He said, no, I had my phone off. But, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, don't, don't listen to it. Don't listen to it. It's just... Just telling you that I was going to be late. So he's like, okay, all right, all right. And I was like, you know, in fact, give me your phone right now. Let me just, let me just, just, just delete it for you right now. Just to make sure, seriously, doesn't, you don't need to waste your time on that. <laughs> what a mess. I'm such a mess. I mean, here I am as a pastor who's preaching about, <laughs> preaching at this church in Chinatown, New York. And just a few minutes earlier, I was raining down curses from heaven on Chinatown, New York. 
Oh my goodness. I'm a mess. We're all a mess sometimes. You know, I could imagine for Nehemiah, like, here he is, like, he's gone through this painstaking work of rebuilding. And he's just like, what in the world is going on? And he's like, we're just a mess. You know what's so stunning is that throughout the the chapter in chapter 13, in the midst of Nehemiah being mad at everyone, there are these moments where you, you see him praying for just grace and mercy. Check this out. Look at what it says. Nehemiah is constantly, he says, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its servants. He's like, God, please remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your love. God, remember me. Remember them, my God, because they defied and defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And the last verse in Nehemiah chapter 13 in the entire book is, God, would you remember me with favor? We're sort of in the same place that we started in. Would you just remember me with favor? You, you see this glimpse of like just Nehemiah. It's like he's resigned to just like, I'm just such a mess and I need you. Just could you please, God, could you just remember me? Remember us. You know, there's actually this theological term. It's this term called sanctification. Sanctification is used in the scriptures, and sanctification is this process by which we become made holy or we become more made like Jesus. So the idea of sanctification is that once I've decided to follow Jesus, Hopefully, what I've done is I've let go of the things that, that have kept me from Jesus, and I start following Jesus wholeheartedly with my time, my energy, my money, with all of who I am, that Jesus becomes the center of my attention and my affections. And oftentimes, this process of sanctification is what we're on. And the reality is, hopefully, when I'm in this process of sanctification, hopefully, I'm sinning less than I was And sanctification is this process. Again, it's a process. We'll never be perfect, but it's this process. You know, what I thought I would do is actually offer to you a a vision or a model of sanctification that I think would be true of you as it's been true for me. And so I went super high tech here. We got our post-it board, everyone. So if you could imagine, like at the top of this, if I were to put like here is God. God is up here, right? Holiness kindness, perfection, love. And then at the bottom, like, let's just say, let's just put evil down here, right? If we were to talk about evil being the opposite of God, you know, evil would be like uh, the New England Patriots or like the, uh, the Boston Red Sox or, I thought that was funny. I didn't think it was like, you guys are a very sympathetic crowd here. <laughs> Now, here's the reality, right? When it comes down to it, like most of us, when we think of like, where am I on this spectrum? Like most of us, like we'd be like, you know what? I'm probably like right here, right? I'm not, I'm not pure evil, but I'm not like, like super close to God. I mean, this is what most of us think, right? You know, like Solomon and Catherine Abaki, they would be like up here, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but the rest of us, come on, let's be honest, right? Let's, let's be honest. The rest of us are probably like right there in the middle, and, and, and so when it comes to, like, when we, when we start our life with God, 
a lot of us would like to think of our lives as like, ah, you know what? Okay, I've met Jesus. I'm on this path then. I'm trying to become more like Jesus. And here's what it looks like, right? It's like, oh, like I'm just, I'm getting there, but then I make a mistake again. And then I'm, I'm getting there, but then I, you know, I get married. Or, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Marriage is amazing. It's beautiful, guys. Uh, <laughs> but like, you know what this process is like, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm just, I'm trying my best to get there. And, and, and maybe like the total slope, it is like this very slight upward slope. But the reality is it's this struggle. It's like five steps forward, three steps back, two steps forward, five steps back. And, and so sanctification can often feel like this difficult journey. Now, here's what's interesting is that if you look at the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, one of the fascinating things about the Apostle Paul was that throughout his letters, you see him, like the way that he views himself, he's continually saying about himself, like, man, I am a sinner. In the book of Romans, he basically says, man, I do what I don't want to do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. And he's like, who will rescue me from this, from myself? The fact that I am more sinful than I thought. And so time and time, he would continue to preach about the grace of God. In the book of Philippians, he would talk about all his accomplishments are like rubbish. It's almost like the older he gets in life, as much as he's on this journey of trying to get there, what you notice about him is he's actually almost on a pathway down. Like he almost begins to notice about himself more and more just how fallen and what a mess he is. In fact, at the end of his life, at the, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you know how he describes himself? He actually says, I am the chief of all sinners. It's almost like as he's gotten older in his journey with God, all that's happened is he's realized more and more just how messed up he is. And it's absolutely stunning. Now, here's the thing, though. Because I told you he would talk about grace. Do you remember how I talked about how in the covenant, a co- you know, a sacrifice was made? Nehemiah would be calling out, remember us, oh God, remember me. In your great mercy, would you just please remember us in our messed upness? God would remember Nehemiah. He would send Jesus to come and die on a cross to be the sacrifice once and for all. Why? The scriptures tell us the reason why Jesus comes is to communicate to you and I that rather than punish the people who were messed up and did whatever they did, God would rather sacrifice himself, give his very life, so that you and I would know that God's disposition and his heart towards you is one of infinite love that God loves you enough that he would give of himself his very life so that you would know just how deeply and fully God loves you. Now, here's the miracle of the Christian message because I was telling you before, right? For the Apostle Paul, he keeps seeing himself as as a sinner who keeps doing what he doesn't want to do and who doesn't do what he wants to do and the chief of all sinners. He's got this journey downward. 
But here's what happens the more we see ourselves and the more we recognize just how messed up we are. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is always what bridged the gap. And you see, the deeper the sin the scriptures tell us, the deeper the grace of God. And the cross becomes that much bigger. The mercy and the love of Jesus becomes that much bigger. Because as Paul recognizes, I am the chief of all sinners, he recognizes God is the chief of all lovers. That God would forgive me. That God would, in my own desperation, that in my own sin, though I am the chief of sinners, Jesus is the chief of lovers. That's how big the cross of Jesus Christ goes. See, the more I see how sinful I am, the more I see how big God is. And the more I see how big God's love is. Sorry, just got a little cheesy with the heart there, but nonetheless, to stay with me, right? Like, yeah. Tim Keller puts it this way. You and I are more sinful than we dare to believe. But you and I are more loved than we dare to hope. And because we're more sinful than we dare to believe, because we keep messing up like the people in Nehemiah's day, yes, we can actually admit, I am a mess. We are a mess. But because we are more loved than we dare to hope, it's not only that we are a mess. You see, we are a beautiful mess. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, you are a beautiful mess. Turn to your other neighbor and say, you are too. Here we are, community of a beautiful mess. We all make mistakes. We all stumble and fall. Thank God for his great love. See, what it means to be a Christian is not that you're someone who's made it and you've arrived. Unless you're Solomon and Catherine. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) It means that you're willing to say, I am more sinful than I dare to believe. But you're also able to say, I am more loved than I ever dared to hope. Some of us today, we need to embrace the messed upness. Maybe we need to be humbled a little bit. We need to recognize that we are not our own gods, that we're all just human beings. And when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to the way that we go about life, like we need to be humbled. And others of us need to recognize that we are loved and we are secure. And whatever shame or fear or insecurity has crippled us right now when it comes to work or our, our relationships, we need to believe, again, that we are loved by a good and beautiful Father. So friends, welcome to this beautiful mess. The story ends of Nehemiah, but the name of Jesus lives on because what God has always been wanting to do to reveal to his people is that he's always been a God of love. He's always been a God 
who is here to invite you to a beautiful mess.